Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year And to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Amara Jones. Every day, the attacks on trans kids grow louder. And more anti-trans bills keep moving through state legislatures. In this season of the Anti-Trans Hate Machine, we're going to illuminate how the right wing has fueled these bills by generating a breathtaking and wide-ranging disinformation campaign. It's spreading like wildfire on the internet. It's then being discussed by families and churches. None of this is an accident. It's a strategy to delegitimize trans people and create a world where our existence is a question. Subscribe to season two of the Anti-Trans Hate Machine, a plot against equality, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Foe, 
Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Hey everyone, this is the Helping Friendly Podcast. This is episode 122. We are here with one of our most distinguished guests, um, who's back, Wally Waxbanks. Hello, Wally. Hello. Great to have you back, man. It's nice to see you guys again. It's friendly faces. Friendly faces. One of the best handles on the internet, Waxbanks. Yes. Is it? Yeah, I think so. I lived with a Persian Canadian venture capitalist what? who duh, he my stupid uh, nickname at my fraternity was Minwax, and he decided he invented for me a, some sort of character Wax a million banks goods and services, and wow. uh, I allowed I allowed that appellation just because I had no identity of my own. <laughs> so, wow. So, so that's that a nice is, story to introduce me. Man, that is the second craziest intro that we've ever had. I will, I will not mention number one. Um, what's up, Ollie? Great to have you back. This is RJ. I'm here with Brad, who you've already heard, and Matt. Howdy. This all started, as, as most great American stories do, um, with a tweet. And um, we, we were, we were <laughs> tweeting about fish one time. It only happened a couple times. It was one of the times. And um, we got in a conversation with Wally, and here we are. And um, we'll explain a little bit about the, uh, about the episode in a minute. But, um, Wally, you've been – you are most well-known, I think, for having really, really smart fish commentary, particularly in your 33rd in a book on a live one. And your book about Fall 97, Tiny Space to Move and Breathe um, – we 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 love your work and we appreciate your perspective. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to so, say. I, 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 it's hard to gracefully take 33, a compliment. 33 and a third is actually what the series yeah. was called. Not 33rd and a third or whatever you just said. And then um, <laughs> Close enough, and it was babe. about a live one. Right? I said a live yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. yeah and it's it, called active yeah. listening, Brad. <laughs> no. But um, i just like to correct you. And then so uh, Wally well, also put our names in that book me and RJ's name and I was like so I have the yeah. book like I actually bought like eight copies because I have eight rooms in my house and I put one in each jeez <laughs> but um <laughs> but um no that's it's yeah I like how you slipped in there it's not that many eight is not it's that also many the, <laughs> it's also the only book in any of the rooms so it stands out. <laughs> one room, it, it holds like a, le- a leg on a table that's a little shorter than the other ones. 
Oh man, they don't even have they don't even have bookcases in Phoenix because it's got like all the extra room you have has to be swimming pools. You gotta have you gotta have a swimming pool that connects everything. <laughs> it's a city city ordinance. <laughs> all right, I, I gotta say, man, the acknowledgments page, like the one of the be- big joys of writing a book is like when all the other shit is done. Uh, you can sort of guiltlessly do whatever you want to the word count on the acknowledgments page. So you can start including people there who have really only contributed marginally. I'm not. <laughs> Hold on. I'm not, wow. <laughs> so it comes out. What I, so what I was actually going to say is that it's uh, like it's it just feels like a chance to just spray uh, just joy and thanks and gratitude all over all these people. And people don't like every acknowledgments page of the world were full of, full of honest writers would be like 30 pages long. Man, it's just, I, I was so great. Like everybody on that page, I was just, my heart was bursting with joy as I wrote it. And I, you guys, what you do is fantastic. And I'm always really grateful to be even peripherally associated with it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not joking. Excellent. Thanks. Well, I mean, I know that your, I know that your son also was thanked, but I, I don't think I remember you having a podcast <laughs> with him talking about fish. So I don't know what he was yeah. really yeah. doing. And he, he was, uh, it was a pity you know? party for him in print. <laughs> <laughs> why he's in there so so wally let's um let, let's get your perspective on sort of the you know last i don't think we've you've been on for maybe a year yeah. maybe two how how what have you thought of fish you know over the past past couple of years what do you think of 2017 then we can get into the kind of episode topic uh, everything's been pretty great and the band seems super healthy and the community seems not riven by factionalism and status seeking horse pucky so that's pretty swell. <laughs> uh, that's a marked change from the 20 years preceding. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Agree. I mean, I agree. Um, yeah, even 09, even 09 to 12, maybe 13. Yeah. I mean, right? there's. Um, it's all oh, through yeah. the. Yeah, well, there's right? not. There doesn't agree? seem to be any anxiety left about uh, the band can sort of do what they like within the technical limits of being 50 years old. And. Uh, the music is, you know, they're not they're not breaking as much new ground as they used to in terms of like from bar to bar, but in terms of uh, uh, like mid life and mid career achievements as craftsmen, uh, I th- I mean, I was thinking the other day, I was trying to think about who, what are the musicians in American history have reinvented themselves uh, it, at mid life with with that death seriousness and of end of achievement. And the list is not long. Like I started, I started, like I was a little embarrassed because I started thinking, well, this like Miles Davis is an example. <laughs> and anytime I'm comparing the two, I'm just like, oh, I, I got to stop. Like I'm going to sound like a drooling <laughs> fanboy fool. So I didn't get far with that exercise. Well, that's, a, it's a good summary though, because everything is, is pretty great right now. And um, that's sort of where this um, episode topic came up. I was tweeting about the lawn boy and, um, started throwing things around that I shouldn't on Twitter, which happens a lot, but um, started a conversation about what we were, what we're calling, if you have read the show notes, turning points in fish history. And I feel pretty strongly that the, the lawn boy from Baker's dozen was one, but then I think we, Wally tweeted a couple things and then we had hundreds of exchanges of people throwing out other 
um, turning points, important moments. And so we're here to, it's a pretty big task, but we're here to kind of present to you what we think, what we think the top 15 of those are um, throughout fish history. And I'm expecting everyone to yell at us a lot um, about things we forgot and things that we did wrong. And um, we haven't had that for a while. Let me so, say that, um, you know, this is at us, bro. <laughs> at us. Just, this is, um, we had a long list, right? That we tried to call down. I think, you know, RJ did a lot of work on it to call it and uh, call it. And then not that much. Um, it's still long, right? And to to make it succinct, but also not like the things that you would automatically go to, the, the points uh, or jams that you would automatically go to, it's a difficult task. So, um, you know, here we are. And uh, it's, it's a pretty awesome list. And um, I appreciate wally's input and matt's input and uh jonathan too he's not here tonight but like he's um he's a big part of this as well matt was wielding a pretty heavy red pen in the <laughs> yeah, he was. uh and i really appreciated that because <laughs> yeah. there's a tendency like when you're waxing rhapsodic about here's here's the music i've loved best ever since i was a teenager and uh you want to like it, it the small the moments of small personal transformation or of like clarification uh, like they can, they can take on this enormous importance in retrospect. And it's, it can be like, you have to sort of put three or four heads together to say, actually, you're, you're overriding the significance of this moment with the significance for you. And that's a, that's an interesting challenge. Like normally this like top N list making is let's be frank, childish, <laughs> but uh, that's pretty good at the whole chill bro. The thing. Activity chill has been, bro. Yeah. The activity has been made sacred by Matt's yeah. contribution. Well, Matt. <laughs> well, and I, I think that, you know, the, the culling of the list, the, the paring it down, the, the conversation originally started as what are the most important jams, mm -hmm. right? And so it's easy for people to throw out favorite jams, personal moments where they had, you know, some sort of transformative experience, like you were saying, Wally. But um, what is, we had to ha kind of have a discussion about what is important. And I think it's good that we've sort of redefined that as turning points, uh, in the band's history, because, um, there were some, some tough decisions that we had. If you look at like right. 94, 95, fall 97, some of these periods where they were playing a series of really classic jams, we had to look at it and, and, and take the you know, take the scalpel to, to a couple of jams that were like really, really amazing. And at first glance, you'd say, why would you remove that from this list? But within the context of everything else, was it that important? Was it a turning point for the band or was it just a kick-ass jam? And, you know, we started, I think the list was we started maybe with 22, like, We started with like 40 like and many, the other point, many of your comments were, your most common comment it went, was it went down. good, but important, question mark. Yeah. And then, so, so it's true. <laughs> Right. Well, and and the other point that I was that I made was if we're going to have a list of these most important jams, how could you have a list of most important that's 40 longer, that's even 20 long, right? You have to get it down to more to a more concise list if they're going to be truly important. Um I think we did a, a good job of getting it down to a a, a nice sized batch. Hmm. Well, I, it's interesting Matt, you mentioned like the process of going through the list actually made us rethink the, the what it you know the way we defined it and so that's that's an important point because we did like you know important important like a lot of stuff can be important but we're talking about like you know most important went into kind of key and turning points is it actually helped me to think about it that way because then it's a little easier to get rid of some things that you're just personally passionate about or, or that you think are really good right 
I think we all kind of threw that out there. I'll throw in there. Yeah, I'll, I'll throw in there that um, yep. the you know the twelve seven tube Dayton Jam, the Tweezer Bella, these are all amazing things. But like, I I feel like this list is more of a, how they get there, right? So where where previously in the in the you know maybe the month before or the six months before. Did they kind of, you know, did they make the, the turn? Did they uh, learn something new or did Trey start playing like a familiar riff or whatever that uh, we recognize a couple months later, a couple shows later? Are we talking about the moments um, after which nothing will be the same? Or are we talking about the moments where we realize that things are already fundamentally different than they were? So, like, you know, are, are we trying to identify the corners that the band has turned or are we trying to, uh, are we talking about the moments when we realize they've already turned a corner? Cause it's really, it can be really hard as you're saying, uh, uh, Brad to unearth those, uh, like the, the slow process of transformation because these guys are, you know, they play some, some years, they play what, like 150 or 200 shows and every night a little bit is happening. That's make, these are the conditions of possibility of the big breakthroughs. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think the um, we were going to kind of define turning points, but that's exactly what you're doing, Wally. And I think that's important because, for example, in, if you just take the first thing that we're going to talk about, and the, just before I answer your question, I just want to tell everyone that we're avoiding actually ranking things, which I think is um, gets us out of one big, like, kind of not that helpful task because we don't have to actually like tell you which are like what's the number one most important versus number 15 we're going to go in chronological order and while a year like we're going to talk about a jam from 93 and i think that these most of these fall into the i forget if it was the first or second category but the one where we as fans or either realized or now look back on as the moment that we know things have already changed because in earlier 93, like there's that Newport um, split open and melt from April 93, which Mike talked about and they used in demand and like that. That's that was a turning point, right? Probably or at least that month was important. But mm-hmm. we hear it come out a few months later in a different kind of um, in a different piece of music. And I think it's like we get attracted to them, the longer, longer, more interesting jams, not necessarily where they actually kind of broke through in four minutes of split open and melt or in the middle of an incise jam or something like that right so we're, we're focusing on these big um memorable jams when the elements of it maybe had already been starting that's sort of what you're saying right uh, yeah i mean there's a, well that's part, part of it certainly it's like there's a tendency we we tend to look for a monument and so people like you can actually use if you want to if you want to predict like what which jams are going to be cited as the best jams of the year, you can use length as a as a proxy for that. And it's going to you're going to end up with a pretty close to the consensus list for the fish fandom. Mm-hmm. And that's that seems a little lame, to be honest, because it means that <laughs> I mean, I, you yeah. know, I, I, I piss and moan about things. It's my brand. <laughs> but like, uh, like it, it means that a lot of the time there are. We're, we have a harder time seeing the evolution and the continuity from year to year because we're not looking inside of what we type one jams or we're not looking at more compact performances um, because it's harder to see the differences from night to night. Uh, you know, you don't have to have You have to have kind of a, a, a more specialized vocabulary to talk about the difference between uh, two, you know, three minute improvisations when you really got to be listening to like bar to bar transitions 
when the differences between two 20 minute down with diseases are very clear. Hmm. You know? Do you guys think that if we put the question to the band, they would have the same answer? Like, no. Expand Not on that. All. You mean, you mean, would the four of them give the same answer? or would, do, do they find the same jams to be the, the most important jams or the, the turning points in their career? Would they have different experiences? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think so. I, number one, I think that like some, like Trey, you know, I don't think he really pays attention. Like if you asked him, you know, in 98, you know, do you remember whatever? And he would probably say no, but Mike would, would because he keeps the journal or did keep the journal. Yeah. Right. I, I, I don't know. And, and then fish, fish with the, the backbeat, like the, you know, the, the metronome of the band, he would probably have something else to say. I, I, yeah. I don't know. It's a tough question. It's interesting. It makes me think of divided sky from Chicago 94, right? Just going to say that. Really? Yeah. yeah. So that's like, according to Mike and his interviews and, you know, strange tweets and things like he, he'll talk about things that weren't super notable, right. As being like, Breakthrough. I forget what the Baker's Dozen example was, but I think he talked about on Stephen Hyden's interview, right? He didn't. He didn't say he wouldn't. He wouldn't say which one because he didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Oh, okay. But, he didn't um, say which one. He basically said there was a show that everybody thought was like one of the greatest shows of all time, and I just didn't feel it. But I had another show. He talked about the um, the the Velvet Night, which was a great show, but I don't think most fans had even in their kind of top tier of of shows, and he was the first one to say, no, I had a transformative experience during that, that the twist was amazing. Mike is also an interesting case because we didn't list it here. We all kind of ignored it, but he's spoken publicly many times about his transformative experience Mm -hmm. in 1985 where he... Uh, I think he ate a pot brownie and they played and um, he decided that night that music was what he wanted to do for the rest of his life. And he says that he's been chasing that experience for the, you know, his, his entire career. Yeah. I wonder if anybody that was in that room in 1985 or if you listen to the recording would say, oh, my God, this is a transformative fish jam. This is a turning point. That was such a personal experience for, for Mike himself. I mean, nobody, nobody likes to hear stories about the big revelation you had at church. It's the same way. Like, it's a thing that's going on inside yeah. you. And it might feel like you're in a new universe. And it's because you're imagining a new universe around you. But it's not because a new universe suddenly appeared in the church. I remember, so in the fish book, he talks about that, uh, that amazing Richard Gare's, you know, big uh, coffee table fish book. And he says he filled like two notebooks with meditations on that experience. And I think in that section of the book, they they say uh, that for everybody in unity, playing at the Paradise in Boston for the first time was a big deal because it was the first time they played for like a thousand people or something. It was, it was some like huge breakthrough for them in terms of uh, growing as a band. But uh, musically, they say it was no big deal. And whoever was talking about it in the book says that the next night with all that pressure off was like the best show that he had, they played or something because it was, uh, like they were in a new space personally that it doesn't like it's it's not necessarily going to be on the tapes but it suddenly it's like they are they're suddenly licensed to have collective personal experience um, that wasn't even possible it wasn't possible until they had played that you know for those thousand people that they could then get small and being small then took on a new meaning for them that it couldn't have had and that they couldn't have imagined when because before you get to play that big show being small means you're not big yet. And then after that, being small means you're safe or you're familiar or something. Um, and so that change of meaning, you feel it like a Mack truck, 
but nobody around you gives a shit. It mm-hmm. just means they're a smaller show. Yeah, that's that a good point. Sense? Yeah, and that's that's sort of like I was I was thinking earlier when when you asked that question, Matt. It was like we're in a way the fans and the band are kind of going for um, opposite experiences. I mean, we're all like looking for awesome music experiences, but what what they're going through is just so different from what we're going through. We're like we're we're looking for what we want and they're you know, looking for what they want, which I guess sometimes those align and like maybe those are the moments that, that are great for everyone, but often they're different, right? There's a, there's a, yeah. there's actually a passage in the, not to cite myself. I don't know if that's lame or awesome, but I'm going to enjoy it. Uh, so, so, so there's a passage in the 33 and a third book where I, I was saying that uh, it's sort of an offhand comment, but I, I, I think it's resonated with me I, since I wrote it. I didn't know that I knew it until I wrote it. Um, or thought it um, is that for the for us in the middle of the stash the stash jam on a live one for the listener part of the pleasure is being lost in that in the the I think it's in the the long instrumental section in the middle of stash um, uh, you know part of the pleasure is being discombobulated and having those strange time signatures and strange modulations come at you and losing the center for the band surely like have you know having played in bands at least for me this is true the pleasure is in keeping track uh like it's they can't be lost <laughs> like their job is to stay on mm-hmm. it and when they're when they're like hitting every downbeat they're having uh, like the opposite of the experience that we're having. They're providing our experience. We're validating their experience. And so they're sort of bound together, but they're not, they're not at all the same. Um, and so I, I imagine like the big moments, when the, when the audience is having a big moment, they know it. Um, but they, it's not necessarily because they're going through the same thing at all. Well, and the other thing that a lot of people don't think about, particularly if you've never performed music for people, is that a lot of times when you're performing, like you're an audience member and you're consuming and you're thinking about it, as a performer, what could be going through your mind at that moment is like, shit, my shoe's tied too tight. Yeah. Or like, like, you know, I should have gone to the bathroom again before I came out on stage or like, you know, like what's that person in the front row doing that's really distracting. And so, you know, they may come out with a great performance, but it may not be the same experience that you have as as an audience member because of those other contributing factors as well. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that my I would definitely be thinking about how I should have gone to the bathroom again before going out there. That would definitely be my thought. Um, anyway, so guys, let's let's talk about the first sort of turning point moment that we were all able to agree on, um, which was the the Mirad Jin August ninety three. It seems like it's pretty recognized as a as a monumental sort of jam that kind of changed changed their. I, I, it was sort of the first time that they really jammed <laughs> maybe not that song but that that and that version but that year they kind of started to um do improv beyond just like you and myself or or tweezer even which were like supposed to be improvisational so maybe they brought in their improv um in 93 i think this is representative of that i don't know if you guys agree with that that's sort of how i was thinking about it yeah, I think a lot of people acknowledge the, that Murat Jin as August 93 was, in, in general, was a turning point in that jam in particular. I don't think the bathtub Jin had really done that before. It was pretty straightforward. Um, if they stretched it out, it stayed type one, as we would call it. This is really where the, that, that period is where the type two jamming was born. 
where they went from taking you know songs like even like Tweezer or Hood or Mike Song or anything that had a pretty linear progression, thinking outside the box, taking them to places that, that they had never been before, um, and it was in its infancy, and so it's not always clean. It's not always it doesn't always create a transcendent experience like they would learn to, um, but when you listen to the shows in order if you're, or if you were attending the shows you know during that period it's very obvious that something was changing at, at that point it was it was the birth of a new um, a new era of fish I think of the I think of the band in general, although this is more true for certain members of it, as being fairly analytical in their approach. And Trey certainly has talked about this. And uh, I suspect uh, you know the colossal amount of drugs that they've taken has has helped them to loosen up in this regard. But um, I think of I think of the band's evolution throughout the '90s as being this process of throughout the beginning of the '90s tightening up and then letting go. So much of their career to me is about loosening up and letting go and opening up, basically aspiring to be more like the Grateful Dead in a way, like being just loosey goosey, um, having, having mastered all their technical aspects of their craft and, uh, and, and being able to play like these fiendishly complicated tunes in front of a thousand like rock fans, like being, and that's got to make them kind of nervous too. Because you're not, you know, you're not born with an audience that's cool with that. Like you have to find them, and that's a hard task. But then, then into the mid '90s, then they they are reaching this place where suddenly the question is: Can can our thought process, and can the process of us working out what the hell we're going to do up here, can that be an object of, can that be a subject of interest for everybody in the room? 
And can we all, can we all agree that that's an okay place to be? Like, and so I, I talk about, um, like I'm fond of the phrase that they play antagonistic music in their early, early fish is very antagonistic. Like they're, you know, Trey will be playing a, a happy, you know, major key melody. And then we'll throw in this disgusting tritone to like to throw us off specifically to throw us off in order to generate a contrast effect when he comes back to the sweetness of the original melody. Right. Um, and, he, and that, variations on that up to the up to five or 10 minute variations on that like make up so much of their early approach to music is a simple uh, an almost simple temp- tension and release exercise and contrast contrast effects and then it seems like the process and and 93 being the maybe the locus of this of them is them coming to accept that it doesn't have to just generate a big pop a big contrast effect it can just be like Let's let's see what's here. Let instead of using this this contrast as just a tool, let's just live it. Basically, like reverse engineering the inside of jazz, which is an unresolved seventh, <laughs> is okay, and we could live here forever. And it only took Fish like ten years to, to yeah. figure that out for themselves because the part of their brain in front is way too big, and the part of the brain where like sex and stuff happens is probably too small. <laughs> so, um, I, Psychology I just wanted hour, you to right? know that. Um, <laughs> I opened the Fish Companion to the to this set list, and the Fish Companion says that if there is a single inflection point in the arc of Fish history after which things were never the same, it may well be the Murat Jin. So, yeah, they Holy agree mold. with us. Wow. I hope that the next one doesn't say the same thing. Or this whole premise is fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Read you the know, novelization of this yeah. podcast entitled. You know, what I would want to know is where, with respect to August 93, and in particular this jam, they started doing the hay exercises, which informed so much of what they were doing 94 mm, yeah. through 95. Um, and you, we've talked about this in, in the Tweezer episode and a couple other episodes, how you could, he- if you know what those episodes, what those exercises are like, you can hear them doing them on stage. Yes. Um, and it seems like around this period of time might have been, I don't know how long they were doing it, if it was for years and they just decided that they were comfortable enough to do it on stage or if it was a new thing at this point. But um, that seemed to, to, steer the direction of, of what they were doing for the next several years, at least. I remember Trey, I remember one of them. I, I want to say it's Trey talking about the, the kind of fiendish glee that the band had, like they would play a frat party and they would get on stage and they would do a, an exercise in order to mess with the crowd at a frat party, which means that they were doing it pretty early. They've always been big, like practice room players. Like that's sort of where they, in some ways that's like their real home is when it's just the four of them mind-melding and there's no responsibility to be entertaining. But their natural generosity sort of comes out, so the music is still... I mean, when we hear things like the headphones jam or sound check jams, like they still make like welcoming music. I think that's just because they're basically nice people. Um, and that's sort of their niceness and kindness and generosity comes out. But at some point, they switched from, like, we can do those exercises on stage to fuck with these guys, like these beer-drinking doofuses, and they switched over to we can do these exercises on stage because they're generating really cool things. Like this material isn't it's not throwaway. This isn't just our practice process. Something's happening here. It's still electricity. And that's a hard thing. That's a hard thing to accept for, as like when you're as nerdy as these guys are. It's it's like it's okay. Our private, our fucked up private habits that we do to mess with people, it turns out we can share them and not be ashamed of them and take our tongue out of our cheek 
and just and see what happens when we do this for real. Yeah, that's well, and I think that is the next one. The next moment we're going to highlight is is the bomb factory, of course, in '94, and that's a good example of when that became even more um, overt, I guess. Right? Like they they had been doing segways at least since '93, but some of the some some of the first ones were in um, August of '93. There's a Tinley Park antelope which had you know the antelope have mercy right there were other examples of those yeah but this was you know it's incredible if you look at the set list how many different tracks there were but um this is sort of a more overt manifestation of what you're describing well it's like now we're just going to do this like all the time and and have fun which maybe gave them a little more freedom but also probably presented new challenges too Thank you. 
This is a huge deal from May 94. Uh, they, they've come off of, of 93 and, and even the earlier years where they played a bunch of shows. And this is, um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I guess getting, getting their legs as far as extended jams go. I mean, obviously we've had some before, but this is kind of the first of them taking a second set and just saying, here we go. Right? Like no real, real plan. Maybe? Well, and we have actual evidence about um, the the turning point on this one because Mike wrote in his journal that was published in the Live Fish that came out for this, and they, I think several of the band members have spoken that before coming on stage for this set, they had a discussion and they said, "No matter what happens, keep playing. Let's just get we'll go out, we'll do Tweezer, and we'll just keep pushing forward and see what happens." So as opposed to so many of the shows where we can guess that stuff like that happens, we actually this is one of the few examples i think we have where we know that they went out and they said let's do something with this set and they did shots at set break right to loosen up it's a good idea yeah oh, it's, i mean it's a great apparently um they did uh when you're young so yeah, well yeah <laughs> not not like us anymore it's not a good idea now <laughs> um so so Rob Mitchum has been writing these fantastic essays about uh, the early years of the band. He's been going show by show in 93 and 94. And he talks about how early on, like at the very beginning, the major locus for their improvisation was was storytelling. That Trey's like verbal improvisation, because he, he has the gift of gap, obviously, um, was it was the place where they felt freest. Like they could count on him to to rap, basically. In, in the the sixty sense of the of the of the term, and um, and the thing is, those those improvisations tended to be silly. They tended to be comic. Like that's the over that's the sense that I have. It's like he they were they knew how to get a laugh, and sometimes that's nervous laughter, like playing playing like a long uh, Dave's Energy Guide in front of a frat party. Like that's kind of nervous, uncomfortable laughter, and. Um, at some at some point, and again, I think it's ninety three and ninety four where they start being a comfortable with the fact that that's part of who they are, and letting those the comics juxtapositions, the jarring like step change juxtapositions, letting that just just be, and letting it be a part of the music instead of an intrusion into the music that they then have to kind of wind back to get back to normal, and they also start as you as you're saying, Matt, like when they're no, as Brad was saying, forgive me. Um, you know the the transitions between those passages. They're not just like they're not just in a hurry to get where they're going anymore. Um, and so, so the the same way that you don't want to like rush the punchline. That it's okay to it's okay to meander. It's okay that this is not working. It's okay. This is silly. It we don't have to be like it doesn't have to be a big laugh. It can be. Uh, it can it can just be it, it can be itself. Whatever the hell's happening, we're here. We trust each other. Like we practiced a million hours for this. Like the worst that happens is we stop and we just start playing tweezer again and it's all going to be okay. Like every <laughs> drunk in the crowd is going to be okay with that. Right. And so there's, they had nothing to lose. And it's funny, those moments tend to happen. Like the bomb factory is down in the cradle, well, not the cradle, but <laughs> the, the ass end of the Confederacy, right? Like they, it's when they're in the, they're in some, some dive bar in Texas that they're comfortable enough saying we have nothing to lose. So let's be, let's be what our impulses are driving us to be that we're normally too civilized to be. 
And the Texas is the place for that. Something about deep in the heart of Texas and something, something. But what I'm just realizing now when I'm looking at this list is that we have a lot of turning points yeah. that are tweezer. So let's talk about another one. Um, so if, if that, if that um, bomb factory was sort of, uh, it's interesting because the way I'm thinking about it now is like there's, there's different um, pieces of their improvisational formula, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Like bomb factory is representative of something different from the, the, what we're talking about next, which is the Bangor tweezer. Um, Bomb Factory has a lot of pieces put together and there's, you know, creativity and, uh, I don't know, fun and that sort of thing. But this this tweezer was just, just straight up improv, right?
Yeah. No, absolutely. I don't know. It's it's wild. And maybe the first I know it's the first thirty minute tweezer, but um but there's there's probably more to it than than just that that the length. Right. That's a good point. We um we talked on the, the tweezer deep dive episode about how early on the the band did something that a lot of young bands do, which is to have the crutch of trying to throw in covers or familiar teases and stuff like that. Like anytime somebody starts to play something that sounds like something familiar, people will latch on to it because it's almost like a, you know, an oasis in the desert or like a, you know, an island that you can dr- kind of anchor yourself to and then set a new course. Um, but by the fall here in this tweezer in particular, they had the confidence on stage to go long, to go deep, to go strange, um, and purely be creating something. And, it, it, you know, the, um, a lot of those crazy Segway fests that we talked about, including the, you know, the, the bomb, bomb factory tweezer, they get to that point where they start playing cannonball or they, you know, latch on to, to things that they would know. But this jam, they went, um, very, very long and it's completely original. And that starts to see what you, that, that's what you start to see, uh, throughout the course of 94, 95 mm-hmm. and, and beyond. It's, fu- it's funny. The middle of the bomb factory tweezer is a series of it's like jokes, like there's a lot of jokes in the Bomb Factory show, and the Bangor Tweezer is uh, almost oppressively unfunny to me. Like uh, I, I remember writing in doing the thirty three and a third. I listened, as you can imagine, to shit tons of fish, uh, like as writing music, and that mostly meant a lot of ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine, uh, because it was they were sort of floating. Like you and I could float, and that's where I want to be when I'm writing. And I could not write while listening to the Bangor performance. Um, it's just like, it is serious. And I think a lot of that, the baby's mouth, I, I thought nailed it with their essay about this. They, when they, uh, those, those, I miss those crazy kids. Um, you know, they played the white album and that was, that was a long time to learn a lot of songs, half of, half of which are like the prettiest pop songs in the whole universe. And then half of which are dumb jokes. Right. <laughs> um, and so, and then they, yep. so they get to do that. Now they finally get to do their own thing and not, and have all the whole set to do it if they want to. And it's not just like before and after the Halloween set. And so what they choose to do is we're going to play our stupid song that we wrote in five minutes on stage and we're going to play it dark and long and intense. And we're just going to see it's, it's just open when we're going to stay in it. And there's no, like, they're all very, very, very focused. And it seems like it's an answer to what had happened with the White Album show. I think the only... the only Like reasserting... Yeah, yeah I th- that makes sense. The only downside of this tweezer is that it led to the 95, summer 95 tweezers, which are very long and very boring. Exactly what I was going to say. you know, right. it's right. just... <laughs> you, can, you can see them coming. I know. It, you can see them coming. I'm just, doing it mean, this is like- I'm just doing it because Jonathan's not here, and... Um, the reason Jonathan's not here is because Brad is here because Jonathan and Brad have been in a mm. big fight for a long time and only one of them can show up because <laughs> they, well, yeah. they got, they got into it. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I dislike June 95 as much as he likes it. So it makes sense that he's not you here. can't be in the same, right. yeah. same virtual room even. We can't you know? be in the same Skype. Wow. Skype, <laughs> Skype, Skype. How do you say it? Um, <laughs> So, yeah, it's not, it's, it's, I could see it coming. I, I agree. Stop point, uh, 11, 9, 11, 294, 
this is this is a huge deal. But knowing what comes in the summer of '95, it's almost like oh god, like you know, I I just don't I I, I don't the Fleezer, the Mud Island, all those things. It's just not, and you know, this is RJ. I think we have the same opinion about this. It's just not as epic as um, for me as it is for other people. But fall 94, it's, it's interesting to note that this is the only tour in the band's history that we have two jams from the same tour on, hmm. uh, on yeah. our list. Um, because next from, from Bozeman, we go to the Providence Bowie, which is also a, a shame that Jonathan is not here because we know Jonathan's fondness for this jam yeah. among others. The interesting thing to me is that, like, I think it's, this is one that was maybe questionable in terms of like, was it important um, because we talked about these turning points and we've just talked about how in fall 94, they were doing so much more exploration and, you know, Bozeman and Bangor and, and all these tweezers and, and other jams that were go- starting to go long and the bands was, band was stretching their wings. It, to me, like I kept when, when, when I was going through the list and trying to cross stuff out, I kept wanting to cross this out except for the tidbit of the band finishing the jam and taking a um, a bow afterwards because the ovation from the crowd was so large and it's I don't know that there's another example of them ever doing that and I think it this is maybe one of those cases where there's overlap between the audience's experience and the band's experience where maybe there was universal acknowledgement that something just happened what is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
the reason I think it's important, and it's my probably my favorite fish jam of all time, so I'm happy to defend it just right now on this podcast, but never again. Um, this, I think this was, I think this was the first um, real um, example of a of a what I would call like a bliss jam, an impro- a piece of fish improv that was completely that it feels or it's still to me when you listen to it now feels completely organic it doesn't feel forced at all it feels like when when you know 22 minutes in or whatever when they they find themselves into that really blissful major key jam i think this is one of the first examples of something like that in in their history but people will probably tell me that i'm wrong and send me to many others um so that's that's my take. Tweezer and Bowie both seem to invite that shift to, uh, you know, away from the kind of pounding rhythm or in Bowie's, Bowie's um, is like an insinuating rhythm to just allow the band, to allow everybody in the room to just relax and breathe um, is such a rewarding thing. Uh, I think there's something sort of built into the structures of those songs that invites, and also Bowie being this kind of, inviting a kind of modal exploration where it's, it's natural to shift in that way um, where they, where they sort of, they do sort of push the band, I think toward that kind I of resolution. Yeah. Um, but so I want to say, so for me, the Providence boy, I didn't know that about the, the stopping and taking a bow. This is a, I've learned something tonight, but I wonder if that's actually about, it's a well, what I would call a well wrought performance in that after like the performance doesn't end after that big climactic jam as, as I think a modern take on it would have like um, a lot of, we hear a lot of jams these days that get to that big glorious, you know, blissful space. And then that's it. Like that's, and now they kind of, now we're going to Peter out and come back down, but we achieved the thing that we all want most, but they first have to do that fucked up lassie whistling part. I wonder if that's one of the most theatrical things mm-hmm. they had done on stage. Um, and it would make sense after such an unusually theatrical performance to take a bow, especially given like what we know about Trey's like Broadway, his private inner Broadway life and his future on actual Broadway or off actual Broadway, I guess um, like that. There's that side of the band where like bowing is the punchline to hmm. the Lassie section also. Does I that, think that's a fine theory. Fine theory. Uh, I have no idea if that makes sense. I have no idea. Should I don't know. Back. I don't know anything about fish. Bliss at that time was was um, set aside for Reba and Slave and Hood, right? Th- those were like. So it's not like they weren't jamming in major keys in ways that made everyone feel wonderful, but it was they were within certain structures. And I, I wonder. I, I guess Simple also came out in. They started playing it in '94, and I know some of those fall '94 simples are pretty, pretty great. So maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I, I'm just going to s- stick by my assertion because that's what you do in America. It doesn't matter if you're right or not. You just have to stash too. Say I, stuff. I heard somebody say stash earlier. Who's he knows he knows stuff. Someone did. Yeah, <laughs> he knows stuff. Yeah. He's written you know, two books been, on fish. You know, what the fuck have this, I done? But nothing in either of them is correct. Um, there's been I've been told this online. Uh, there's been there it seems like there's been a movement over time to them accepting simple pleasures. 
and and to and welcoming the the audience into simple pleasures increasingly, so that Trey. I, I remember I got a lot of flack once on I think it was in the comment section at Fish Thoughts, uh, Mister Miner's site. Did you get flamed in the comment section? Well, yeah, oh yeah, thank the- you. So I I sure did, and it was because I said that sometimes the high point of the show is them just emotion like uh, uh, playing in an emotionally open way a written song like dirt for some people could be the highlight of a show and a that doesn't yeah it doesn't it doesn't make them dumb or something it's just or or lame or a newbie it's just that sometimes and i think sometimes for the band it that those moments don't come in improvisation they just come in really hooking up and and really wringing every last drop out of a moment of tenderness or of gentleness or quiet, like just having it, you can have peak quietude. You can have peak gentleness. It doesn't always have to be like, we're going to play, you know, one, four, flatted seven, four, and then we're going to do that for two minutes. We're going to get louder as we do it. And you're going to come at the end and then it's over. Like that's, it doesn't have to follow that template, but we readily identify that template as now things are big and majestic. I must feel, you know, this must be a peak for me. But I think sometimes for the band, you know, really leaning into a song like Sleep and and letting themselves be touched by it, that can be that can be a peak for them. Can someone remind me why I started talking about this? I can see why people flamed you. That's a terrible it's a terrible it's a terrible let opinion. Me, let me jump on though. Kidding. Let me let me backpack and that is I I, I totally always or I, I've never seen it, but people have told me that Trey talks about, you know, they need the breathers just as much as they need the peaks. And, and there's, there's the emotion. Like obviously there's emotion when you reach the peak and the bliss peak, especially, but uh, the emotion that they bring after they reach a really great peak uh, on a quiet down, a cool down is just as important. I think for everybody, right. For them to cool down and for us to kind of uh, come back to earth or whatever. And so there, it's often, uh, often my favorite moments of shows for sure. Yeah, uh, and if there, and so I, I think there's there's a sensible line of, of criticism in Fishland when people talk about well they didn't they didn't quite land the set right like they they chose they almost had a loss of taste at a moment when you know they're like this is the Jerry ballad slot and instead we got a Trey ballad unfortunately <laughs> which is. It's re- it's a nasty thing to say, but it's 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 not an unreasonable thing to say. But I think over the years the band here I am. So over the years the band. Winter Queen is amazing, bro. Easy Winter Queen. I love that song. It's I I secretly love that, and but, uh, but I also love Time Turns Elastic. Like I, I'm an idiot. We know this. Um, <laughs> but over the years they've become more accepting of the fact. It seems that they respond to simple pleasures. And that that the fan the fans are getting older the fan base is getting older obviously um, and and so are they and increase and all their friends are that way and so uh, I think more and more they're okay with uh, music that's that's not intellectually demanding or that's not in- abrasive um, that it can just be it can just sort of be and. And, and uh, people eventually reach an age where they say things like, honestly, just getting up in the morning is a gift. And we normally think of that as a defeat. But some in some cultures, that's considered enlightenment. Like, that's a form of it, right? <laughs> uh, our culture, I think, our, our little subculture, I think that's actually uh, it's considered by many people an enlightened thing. And I think Fish's music increasingly embodies that that feeling about the world. That just... 
just being up here making music with my friends, right? Is that's the greatest gift. Trey talks in the Specimens of Beauty movie about like we had all these big ideas when we were younger and we started eventually to put them aside in favor of the biggest idea, which is communication. Mm-hmm. And he sounds like a zonked out Fruit Loop, but he's correct. You know? <laughs> not mutually exclusive. And not. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so you know what I mean. <laughs> you know what I mean. Oh man, um, God, that there, there's a lot of great. Um, I hate that. Some classic Trey, uh, Trey rationalizing and rambling in there. Um, so guys, yeah. we're going to Brad's favorite place, Summer '95. We can't, we can't, you can't like deny that this is like a this is a really really important tour musically, but also just you know, in terms of the venues they were playing and the the breadth that they were starting to explore in terms of where they're playing and what they're doing. And they were on, they were going on late night shows and doing all kinds of stuff. Matt, before we, before we talk about that tweezer, the Mud Island tweezer, um, which was deemed important by lots of people. What, um, what's, I know that you like summer 95 a lot. What do you think about the kind of importance of it and as a tour? So I think that, if we look at 93, 94, the, the, the wings are starting to spread, but you, as I mentioned earlier, are maybe hearing the exercises on stage and this desire to push forward regardless of how it sounds, how it comes out. Um, 95 in general for me is the year when it starts to become more melodic. Um, they start to reach places that are more beautiful, whether it's those bliss jams, um, whether it's, you know, getting, getting to a place of dissonance and then getting out of it really fast. Um, I think that probably what you guys hear, and I won't, uh, you should tell me if I'm wrong because I don't want to speak for you, but, um, what you maybe don't like about the summer 95 versus the fall 95 is that in fall 95, they really got there and the jams have very little that the uneducated ear would listen to and be like, this is shit. These guys are just like dicking around on their guitars on stage or whatever. Um, cause they go from like amazing passage to amazing passage that seem to be, you know, premeditated. Uh, they're, they're so incredible. Um, whereas in the summer 95, the, the jams are much longer than fall 94. Um, but they haven't quite gotten to the place that they did in the fall where everything just sounded like, you know, it was something that they had composed in advance. Um, so they were sort of straddling those those two worlds.
things to kind of boil it down into to my simple brain. It's a little bit. Summer '95 was a little bit like lost jazz, jazzy, where they kind of were just kind of jazzing around, like they didn't have like a place to go, right? And um, and they just wanted to make a 30 minute jam, and then like by fall of '95, they were like more focused, and they were like, oh, if we get here, we can go there, right? And 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 it was a it was a more uh, focused uh, jam. I guess I, to me, it seems like they just kind of like dance around more in, in, in summer 95. It's just not as focused. It's not as fun. It's a little bit lost. It feels lost to me sometimes, but I think Matt, I think you summarized it well. And I think the, um, I mean, I still listen to those and I'll, I'll listen to fucking mud Island tweezer. I don't got any problem with it. It's not like I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to erase it from my computer or whatever, but... Um, yeah, you give it a glass of water before it comes that's back. That's brave of you, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take it out of bed for eating crackers, but, you know, I, it's just... It's, just not, it's not my favorite type of improv, but Wally, what's your what's your, what's your your take? Um, when uh, Well, first a question. Uh, when did Trey first start playing the drums on stage? Like the, his little drum kit? All 95, right? Yeah. Do you guys remember this? Because that's <laughs> was the 90. worst. I don't, I don't, I don't, <laughs> did he do it in '95? Also, was it? I don't no, know. It's in, it, I don't know. I was at guessing. the very least, it's in Fall '95 I, because the um, the Orlando stash he plays, oh, he plays yeah. the drum kit in the middle of it. Um, Does he? I want to say the Landover Free. Oh, yeah, there's there's yeah, some horrible I think drumming. Definitely Fall. I, I, it's a good question as to whether or not it was there in the summer or not. I don't I don't know that it was. I don't think it was, but anyway, who knows? There's no it way. Probably to find was. Out. He's just like sitting there. He's like throwing like fucking pennies at it or something. God, my so my the the heuristic I use is is that if fish are playing indoors, the chances that I'm gonna like it are like five times greater outdoors they're just they're just kind of happy to be outdoors under the stars and there's a tendency sometimes to just hang out a little bit and that can produce that can produce aimless music and sometimes that's a really great open field kind of feeling like it 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 just feels like the music is sort of skimming across the grass I, like I, this is an image i often have in my in my head listening to some performances is that uh it, it, like the music is just it, it's is the bird passing over the crowd? Um, indoors, the the music is often just like pinging off the walls, or it's like it's the building starts to shake, m- metaphorically speaking, or in, literally at Madison Square Garden, right? And uh, there's there's that feeling of like it's it's in, it's infesting everything around it. Um, and th- these are just like the private the images that come up for me privately. And so it's, it's a, fucked up, man. A, those summer jams in the middle of the decade. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm not right. I know I know these things. My wife will tell you I'm not right as a person. Um, she'll tell you more than that. Um, the fish proceed dialectically, right? So there are periods of stretching things out and opening up. Uh, it's like if you're kneading bread. I don't knead bread ever, but if you're ne- kneading dough. Like first you're stretching it out and string it out and then you're smushing it back together and then you're opening it back up again and it looks like a giant noodle and then you squish it back together and it looks like a bun. And then eventually, but (laughs) or something, right? And then eventually it becomes this other thing that had to previously have been both of those things, right? And and that's synthesis, right? And so there, there are times when we, like we look at their music and we think this is bad or wrong or a failure or uh, a, a step back, a retrenchment because it's not progressing in the direction they were progressing last tour that I loved, but it's, and we, that's natural and, and human and everything. But the next tour is what those two parts are going to build toward 
Like they're going to, and it's not just going to be some linear, some of those things, it's going to be some weird convolution of those two movements that we can't predict that we can't imagine in advance. And so the shit that I don't like about uh, the, the shit that's maybe boring in the summer of 95 is the raw material that's going to be refined by being a little tastier uh, later in the year by being, you know, you're, you're indoors, everybody's in a little closer. Everybody's like, you're surrounded in some arenas on all sides by people who's literally looking over your shoulder as you're doing it. There's a finicky attention to detail at times in those, in those fall shows. Like I think of fall 97 as every little show being a little, every, every note being a, a, like a, a little prickle. Um, and I don't get that feeling. I feel like every everything is just a big strum outside. And again, that's my weird internal image. But like, it's those things need to come together to make possible yeah. whatever the hell lies in the future. Like the really boring coral sky. <laughs> <process>. so, <laughs> so it's interesting. So we go, and this is you know the list we made up. So we have no one to blame but ourselves. And you guys can just blame me if you want. But so we go from Mud Island all the way through to Coral Sky. Um, so we kind of skip over for Fall '95 right. and a lot of '96. But is that because that was just they were peaking and it was just it was just peaky? It's not that it's not awesome, right, Matt? Well, to to, to Wally's point earlier, um, is it? You can talk about the the moment when something happens, but you can also talk about the realization when the ingredients mm-hmm. come together. That's probably Fall 95. It's not that there's any particular one jam where the game was changed. It's that you finally saw the realization of what they had been doing for about two years, um, and they just executed really, really well every mm-hmm. single night. Um, and it's not until the, the following Fall 96 in this... Um, uh, this this eleven two ninety six cross eyed where there's a shift again, uh, and they, and they they start to to rewrite the story.
So what about what about um I mean a live one came out or was recorded all in fall ninety four basically, maybe some earlier ninety four. There's some there's a little bit of summer ninety four to it. Okay. Memory, sir. Yeah, so this guy wrote this guy uh, wrote the fucking book. Yeah, I'm not sure if anybody around here knows anything <laughs> about it, but um so I'm just saying, it's true. Th- so we had two we had three jams from ninety four in here and a live one comes out and uh, what is next uh billy breathes in 96 is there anything in 95 other than a live one i don't think so so Sur- surrender to the air is re- recorded oh, before okay. billy breathes nice. oddly enough nice but that's you know that's kind of like a summer 95 kind of album right <laughs> like oh look we're kind of jazzy but we're not very good at jazz oh man um, no- <laughs> <laughs> oh man! I'm just so yeah, yeah, yeah. Just jazzing just around. Jazzing around. <laughs> left-handed, just jazzing around. A bunch of left-handed jazz cigarettes. Um, <laughs> that's gonna be Brad's. That's gonna be Brad's first solo album. Jazzing around. <laughs> so anyway, but '95 they kind of hit their groove, especially fall '95. They knew what they were doing. Things were pretty dialed in. And they hadn't made the fall 96 turn yet. And a lot of people, we've talked about it before on the podcast, a lot of people skip over 96. Other than uh, Halloween 96, a lot of people skip over 96. So maybe that's because they dialed in and then they made a huge pivot in uh, late 96. Wally, do you not enjoy it? I don't know. I don't don't ever listen to it, honestly. Like, I don't don't listen to 96 and... and, uh... I like I I think yeah I don't I don't know what's I don't know what's wrong with me I think it's it's probably a mix of personal shortcomings and uh, the affection that I have for the odd numbered years around it. Um, That's fair. So look, New Year's '95 is perfect uh, as far as I'm concerned. Everything that they had ever done, they bring to bear on a single night. It's their biggest night of the year, and it's by many people's measure their best night of the year, right? And they knock it out of the fucking park, um, and they like they're so confident in their powers. They're like singing barbershop tunes in Madison Square Garden, like that is that is just whipping it out and putting it on the table and just saying deal with it. Like there's and and then they nail it. They don't literally nail it in that sense, um, <clears throat> but like to to liter- it's and like walking off the stage at the end of like in the middle of a Mike song jam, like the word walk off in baseball, like that's what they do. They knock it out of the park and they're like, we'll see you when we mm-hmm. see you, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and then they come back and then they crush it with weak apart. Right. Um, they could do anything and they, they did everything. And then in 96, it strikes me as a little bit like uh 2000 when the having ha- a certain level of like surpassing yourself, it poses a question and then sometimes fish have to go through a period where they struggle to find an answer. Um, and they'd gotten as big as they were going to get in 95, not as not popularity wise, but in terms of the maximalism of the music. So 96, they're like, well, we can keep, we can keep doing this indefinitely, but all through 96, they're trying to find ways to be small. Trey does surrender to the air and it is like, it's right in the title, what he's trying to do. Um, and he's going to play very, very quiet. He's barely audible on the, like he's audible on the album, but he's not, he's not the center of attention. There's no plan. Um, they come in and they do the blob experiment mm-hmm. in the, during the beginning of the Billy Breathe uh, sessions, which is about like letting your three, your three stoner friends delete notes from the music you had made. 
and it's just, and it's like them, you know, clustered around a laptop or whatever. Um, and they make Billy breathes, which sounds, it has a very back porch sound for a lot of the album. Um, and then they decide to play an album by the most like uptight bunch of like white intellectuals band, like on their whole scene, like talking heads are talking heads are they're like they're nerdy. Mm-hmm. They have a nerdy affect to mm-hmm. them. And, um, and a band that was really, that's really finicky about every individual sound again, like the individual notes sound like, like little insects buzzing around on their albums to me. Um, but the, but talking heads, like the, the music that they're playing from remain in light is the music where that band finally, like they got their shit together rhythm wise you know, like that, that was their, that was how they discovered eroticism, right? They had to go through this weird process with Eno of like, we're going to, we're going to bogart the sounds of this entire continent and see what we can do with it. And we're going to play, like, we're going to mix in as he's making uh, my life in the bush of ghosts. Like we're going to take the sounds of religious uh, ceremonies for which I have a kind of, no doubt, a cosmopolitan contempt. And we're going to weave all these things together Um and it's we're gonna get small, or we're gonna get small and weird and 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 hermetic, uh, and that opened them up to the to like the sexiest music they ever played. And Fish underwent the same kind of process as they had to get as small as they could and as intimate and as quiet, so that they could start to like to get big feelings, as we would call my you know when we're talking to our son. <laughs> my son's seven now, and I say, "Are you having big feelings about this?" and <laughs> That's that's how we that's how fish had to sort of work through it. Like, oh, we're working, we're having big feelings about the people dancing in the front row. Yeah, they're they're part of this with us. Does that make? Was that all? Cocaine? I think most of it. Yes, I understood it all. Okay. Um, you know, Good enough. In, Good enough. The, in in the context of this, it's interesting because the, the cross-eyed from from Coral Sky was that was sort of the peak of the song, and they played it a few times in '97, but put it on the shelf um, until until Big Cypress, which. I don't know. That was just interesting. They didn't really reach that peak with that song until um, until they brought it back. Um, and the Big Cypress version is great, but that was not a um, a song that was, it, I don't know. It was sort of temporary, but it, maybe that's just because it was with what Carl Perazzo and whoever, and they were just having a good time playing it a couple times in a row. They couldn't really get that magic back for a few years with it. Um, but I don't know, man. The, the, what you were saying earlier about '95 and '96, we we went um, into depth on August '96 on um, HF Pod Plus, trade which is trademarked and mm-hmm. reserved um, that that name. So don't nice. try to steal it from us. Um, and there were like <laughs> there were more gems in there than I had remembered. <laughs> but you have to like go. It's kind of uh-huh. like it's like mining for mining for gems. So you got to like go through and really really find them. You know. Um, Whereas when you're t- what you're talking about with '97, obviously, like everything's just there's no mining. All the all the jams are on the surface, you know. Um, so anyway, I thought the what yeah. you said about the um, at the end of what you're saying, Wally, about just like the fan. Um, I don't know. You've been talking a lot about different iterations of the bands, the band interacting with the crowd and and interacting with the audience. And um, oh yeah, you were talking about the people dancing in the front row. And I guess that. The next piece where we went next, which was hard to do given, you know, know everything that happened in 97, but we went to the, the great went um, 2001 Arch Jam and in, into Hood, which was 
kind of the first real public display of affection between, or one of the first public displays of affection between Fish and, and the fan base and in terms of a interactive and kind of from people who were there, like Jonathan again, who was not here. Um, I think it was a pretty emotional and, and amazing um, experience for people. So I wonder while it was like they were, mm-hmm. they made a conscious effort to start engaging people more directly at that time or if it just kind of happened like that but that was just interesting that you said that and then this is the next the next turning point that we identified if we're being honest it's just a long they play the cross-eyed groove for a long time and the cross-eyed groove is like the least interesting groove on that album and they play it for a really long time um and i think it's because they were excited to have a guy you could really play that shit on stage with them and because the like Trey talked about in the fish book, he talks about how playing uh, Remain in Light was like rehearsing it. Rehears- they only got through half of the album at the last rehearsal and was terrified that it was going to be a fuck up. And I think the day of the show, they finally like worked their way through the back half of the album. And so he said the first set of Halloween 96 for him was a disaster because he couldn't relax. He he was he felt like he was still in organizational mode. And then they got on stage and they nailed the album and he could finally relax. And so the third set for him was another universe compared to the first. And so they get to Coral Sky and they're in Florida, right? And I don't know, I haven't been to Florida in a long time, but I assume everybody there is in a bathing suit or dressed in like an alligator skin sunglasses or something. Jean and shorts and like a trucker. Jesus. <laughs> they're ne- they're all never nudes. <laughs> and um and they're, you know, and so th- and what they do with the cor- with the coral sky cross-eyed is everybody dance. And fish have always welcomed people like dancing has always been a big part of their of their art, like that feedback between band and audience. But the idea of just being like, there's nothing wrong with us playing this groove for a long time. A lot of people are going to get laid tonight because of what we're about to do. Like that's and that's I, I think that's not necessarily something that comes equally intuitively to all member band like mike i don't think that's his motivation i don't think he's ever had that motivation in his life trey clearly has that hedonistic vibe fish obviously i think page if if he i think he has to take out his pocket calculator and figure out if it can all add up to a party night and i adore the man but he's he's nerdy and analytical very obviously very analytical in his approach and so that that long jam is like them saying you know what we New Year's 95 is such a tight-fisted experience of like everything is mastered, but everything is also like we buckled down and did this and surrender to the air and the blob and the like rustic sort of out of their zone a little bit vibe on Billy Breathes and remain in light. They're all experiments in them loosening their hold and just letting the music go and accepting that what's happening around them is what's happening in the music. Like it's they're the, they're apprehending the music with their bodies instead of their forebrains, and uh, they found out that they could do it, like that it was available to them, and so then they go over to Europe as a fir- in, in again in ninety six first, and then again in ninety seven again as an exercise, getting back to basics, getting back to the instinctual, and the intimate, and the close in, and uh, and they start playing their like loosest most like inviting music a music that invites a specific kind of like erotic energy into the room 
And that liberates them because it turns out that was the missing element of them. I think this is all sort of big theory stuff that I don't really know what the hell I'm talking about, but that's, that's what I feel when I, when I, when I think back about their, those changes is, is them saying, you know, we've done everything we can to get as good as we possibly can at this. Now you just bring what you have, everybody else in the room. And, and we're going to bring that on stage and the art jam is a culmination of that. You know, we're going to surround ourselves with what you've made now, the same way that we surrounded you this entire weekend with what we've made. And let's see, let's see what comes of that. And that's hard for control freaks like Trey to do, but that's when they're at their best is the egoless work of a huge ego. You know, that's, that's when lightning strikes. Yeah. I, th- I think if you're going to say one other thing to sort of bridge from this 96 to 97, there's a case to be made that this coral sky, um, Crosshide Jam is the point at which the groove becomes at least as important or possibly more important than the melodic elements. And that's something that kind of takes over for a couple of years. Um, This is what leads into the funk of 97, uh, eventually this, the sort of space grooves of 99, the bliss grooves of 2000. Um, and I think that's all part of that, that letting go. And then at this art jam that we're talking about now at the great went art jam, the great went in general, you know, you see a lot of that manifestation of the groove and the looseness being so open that it, it feels at times as opposed to what's about to come with the tight funk jams. It, it constantly feels like it's just about to fall apart. At any second, um, it could just completely dissolve into nothing, which is kind of poetic given the, the fact that they also had this moment of creating and just destroying their art in front of everybody.
I mean, I, I, the, the, the big 96, the biggest breakthrough of 96 in some ways is the Clifford Ball. Like that, that, that is a peak of its own in that they made a whole world of their own, like the art installations at Goddard, right? In the, in the basement of that, the building where they used to play Goddard and they replicated that. So they, they had found that they could make a playground for themselves. And then that's, remember, they do the flatbed truck jam. Which again is this exercise, and let's see how close we can get to people. You can't play loudly; it's the middle of the night. It's like lullaby music. Um, but let's see, let's see how close we can and still preserve our structural integrity. Um, and now, and just, and just open it up, and whatever's whatever's going to come of that. And they do, you know, the I feel like the the bluegrass camp of '94 is them like forcing themselves to be humble, forcing themselves to take something they were not expert at and take it on the road. But then 96 is them like saying, all right, well, all of these elements that we have here, they're us. That's, that's what we do. And now let's see if we can sort of boil away some of the grandiosity of it and see what's left. And it turns out, that, and, and I think that begins to generate a joy that maybe they then want to share. Guys, we've been talking about um, these turning points for for a while, and with some awesome music. And appreciate you listening. And we're gonna we're gonna take a, a an episode. This is gonna be the end of part one. We're gonna pick up part two um, next time and continue the conversation with Wally. And Wally, thanks for for sharing and um, coming back on the podcast. And we'll look forward to talking to you more. <laughs> thanks, Matt and Brad. Uh, we'll see you guys soon. Um, give us a review on iTunes if you haven't yet Um, it's helpful for us that's my only ask (laughs) alright everyone talk to you soon keep on rocking powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Amara Jones. Every day, the attacks on trans kids grow louder, and more anti-trans bills keep moving through state legislatures. In this season of the Anti-Trans Hate Machine, we're going to illuminate how the right wing has fueled these bills by generating a breathtaking and wide-ranging disinformation campaign. It's spreading like wildfire on the internet. It's then being discussed by families and churches. None of this is an accident. It's a strategy to delegitimize trans people and create a world where existence is a question. Subscribe to season two of the Anti-Trans Hate Machine, a plot against equality, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, 
authors and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effie Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.